The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's Collective Whisper podcast. My name is Simon Kay, and we're here to bring you another great guest today. But before we get to that guest, we hope you are well, and we hope you're enjoying the content so far. And we ask you, please subscribe and share the show wherever you can. Tell people all about it. This week, we're going to talk to Brendan Courtney. Brendan Courtney is an Irish TV presenter and fashion designer. He was the first openly gay presenter in Ireland. Brendan Courtney has hosted and created countless TV shows, formats, and documentaries for over 20 years. Beginning his television career as a TV researcher in 1998, he fronted his first TV format, Wanderlust, which he then sold to 19 countries. This kickstarted his award-winning career, which has taken him from the BBC in London to Bravo in LA. Now the host of RT1's coveted Sunday night, 8.30pm slot with his hit original format, Keys to Your Life, Brendan has become known as a trusted, entertaining and empathetic host. Welcome to the show, Brendan Courtney. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here today. And you're an interesting character, you know, to say the least. And I think you've had a very varied career and you've had this kind of career that spanned different areas, you know, and now, you, you know, keys to your life and you're involved in fashion, you're involved in so many different things and uh, you're, you know, a great spokesman for diversion and inclusion and everything. That to me is an interesting person. There's lots to talk about. You know what I mean? But they say, you know, I always hang on to the adage that any truly successful people have at least six revenue streams <laughs> so I've always aimed for that <laughs> yeah well that's a good thing as well but it's not just revenue streams either what it is a lot of the time it's passions isn't it passions yeah of course, of course. they're up for me they're all linked to be honest I can see that I can see the path as a thread through it but they can look like I suppose quite uh, different things but for me they're all pretty much linked when, when you look at where you are now and what you're doing could you have seen this back when you started could you have seen like the evolution of your career like this? I mean, interestingly, when I started in television, it took me, I decided when I was 19, I wanted to be a TV presenter because I had been an actor in the Dublin Youth Theatre from the age of 14 to 19, which is a free youth theatre for sort of inner city kids. So it was very grassroots and it was kind of free to go, like 90p on a Saturday or something. It was kind of like a youth club, but it was theatre. So I'd done acting. It was still illegal to be gay in Ireland. I had decided consciously really that I was quite camp as a kid I couldn't hide that I was gay it was very obvious that I was a bit different and so I got ribbed about it and bullied and all that stuff but I decided actually I didn't want to act as somebody else I'd spent my whole young young out of life acting so I thought I want to be a presenter so I want to do a craft that allows me to show off and be, get attention which is basically what I was craving because my parents were unemotionally available as a child Roller story, but uh, and I decided presenting was the way. So I, then I decided, actually, I want to write formats, present them, and put the package together, like kind of like a movie director, but for television. That's in my head, roughly what I thought of it. Create work, and also, you know, I thought, well, I don't have a mortgage at the time, and I don't have kids, so I have space to 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 experiment, and I don't need much to live on, so I can try creative. So that that was really sort of my motivation, and at the start having a Sunday night TV show would have been on my agenda. And now, 20 blah, blah years later, I have a Sunday night TV show and, it, and it's successful. So I suppose 
bigger picture pulling back, I would have hoped by this age, I would have a nice RTE one or BBC one TV show. And I suppose, so, you know, God loves a trier, so tenacity paid off. <laughs> well, of course, yeah. And I suppose all those, you know, when you started back as a TV researcher in 98, and I'm sure you had great ambitions, but as a lot of people know, in any kind of industry, when you go in at the beginning, you know, grassroots, and you're thinking, how do I make those steps? How do I work my, my way up? And, you know, sometimes people, I think, on the outside assume it's who you get to know, it's networking. But, you know, like you said there, you have to kind of sometimes prepare that perfect package or good pitch and I suppose then meet the right people. As I said, I I was in National Youth Theatre and then I got into the Dublin Fringe Festival as a sort of admin kind of, you know, working in the office and working for the director, actually Ali Curran at the time. And then I was approached to go into Riverdance and... This was my break into Tyrone Productions, who I knew were a big production company who owned Riverdance. So I said, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll do whatever you want on Riverdance. And I, my job was to sort of do the admin for the visas for the Russian dancers. So I got to tour. But the whole time I was there, I was going across the garden in Hatch Street. Owen Productions, which is Riverdance, had the Muse building. And Tyrone Productions had the house. So there was a bit where everybody met for a smoke. And so you'd meet the telly people. So I, I was very, um, I would always be out there talking to the telly people coming down from Riverdance, going across there and telling them ideas and blah, blah, blah. And then how I actually got in, this is, this is, it was, I'm just, I suppose it's, it's a lesson to the wise as well. So I was like 25, 24 at this stage. Oh no, 23, 24, I think, right? So, but I was, I was 19. I was in my mid twenties and I took two weeks holiday that I was due because I was on salary in, in Riverdance. And I went and I asked, could I work for free on Open House? So I took two weeks holiday and they were really impressed that I did. They were like, how are you? Why are you here? I said, well, I took two weeks holidays. I really want to work in television. And that really impressed the producer. He was like, you took your holidays to come and work here. And I was like, yep. So I worked for two weeks and I attached myself to this senior researcher who was actually doing a big piece on Billy Barry, who, you know, the Billy Barry school, Billy Barry kids. She was doing a big piece on Billy, who I think was 80 at the time, or maybe 75 or something. So I said, I'll help. So I attached myself to this woman, Liz. And she, she liked me because I was doing all the heavy lifting for her. And I actually took to it quite well and I loved it. And then the next season, they offered me a job as a researcher. But I took three days and went in and worked for free. And I'm not advocating that people should work for free. I think we, we pay our interns and we should all respect people's livelihood as well. But if to, in fashion and in television and in film, to show real ambition, and especially in music, looking up behind you, you, you do your craft because you love it, right? So the money is the second part. Well, I, I think two weeks is not an awful long time for anybody. See, nowadays, if someone's going to be an intern and they're, you know, six months or a year, it's a long time. And, you know, you kind of look at the, the paymasters and say, okay, can you not pay them, whatever. But if someone says, I want to work for you for two weeks and show what I've got, They'll probably work damn hard and they'll make sure they give everything. And then at the end of it, if they impress you enough and they have enough drive, probably a lot of employers would say, wow, I really appreciate the fact they took their time, no pay, you know, and now they're giving me everything. And this is someone I can look forward to working with. Well, cleverly, if you think of it, and I've just, pennies, I've just joined the dots. I actually got holiday pay, if you think about it. So I did get paid. Oh, yeah, you did get paid. <laughs> but also, what I, why I mentioned the Billy Barry thing is I was really fortunate that there was a big project that I could attach myself to. I wasn't pitching against other researchers, which would have been difficult because in, in researchers, you go into a production meeting every morning and you've got two, you got one sentence for the producer to buy into your idea. And they, you did, you go around the table. There was eight of us when I got the job then. And you'd go, okay, I've got a, a one arm banjo player from Kentucky who's written a song about his cat. And they go, no, crap, next. And you go, okay, well, but, but he's married to a woman who's from Leitrim. Okay, get him. You know, so you had to, you had to hone your craft to be able to pitch, elevate a pitch. 
Now, that was a great thing to learn. But it's actually, it's quite tricky to learn that creative of craft of putting like our producer used to say if your idea cannot fit in the little square at the top of the tv column in the newspaper then it's not worth talking about so your idea had to be a, that's where i learned elevator pitching and because you were fighting against eight other researchers every day but at the, when i went over the two weeks i didn't have to do that because i just attached myself to a project so i could shine without competing with people so it was a you know it was a confluence of a couple of lucky events as well it wasn't just me it was the fact that things were happening that i could attach myself to as well i believe a big part if you think of just going for like any kind of job nowadays everything is down to computers analyzing and choosing candidates and people don't really meet the real people behind the person and so what happens is if you are lucky enough to get into the last 10 or 50 or however many is in the pool maybe then you can be seen. So I think in your case, uh, you were there, you were being seen, your personality was coming through. So maybe not only as, you know, pitching ideas as a producer and, you know, a show inventor, they were looking at you and going, you know, this guy could be a good host or a good producer or a good uh, presenter. Sorry. I think they were just a bit like, he's he's going to constantly keep turning up if we don't give him a go. I was like, hello, me, me. How can we get rid of him? How can we get rid of him? Let's burn him, see if he's rubbish. But I also, I think, you know, back to kind of what you are saying, and I'm going to slightly interpret it a little bit, but people work with people they like. Yes, of course. Connections. It's always about connections. Yeah. You don't work with people you don't like. So what it comes down to is, well, I like, is this person, and this is the bias part of it. You go, is this person like me? Do they have, I mean, subconsciously we go, do they share values? Will we get on? You know, and that's what I want to work with. Now, interestingly, and I tell this story when I'm doing my EDI talks, the Philharmonic Orchestra in New York, the New York Orchestra, were sued by two men of, two black men who said they didn't do the job because they were black. And in 1967, yeah. they started doing blind auditions. And so then it worked. Now there's 50% female, but there's still very few black people and Hispanic people because the blind auditions remove the necessity to actually address bias, to address your biases and go, okay, I'm thinking about yes, this yes. just from my perspective. But back in 1998, biases were fine. <laughs> At that time, like you mentioned, you know, when you went in there and you were openly gay. And so in those cases, when you come in and you yeah. show your cards and you said, that's me, you're not hiding anything. And that like the black man turning up the door for the yeah. auditions, people see who he is and they, they don't know the person yeah. inside, but they see his skin color. So straight away, there's biases or prejudices there. So in that respect, if you're brave enough to say, this is who I am, you know, I, I'm not going to change things about me, but you have to get to know the real me and see what I'm capable of. But unfortunately, as you said, when it came to a lot of things in the past, they didn't look beyond skin tone. And actually, you're right. And when it comes to the gay thing, I think I was actually the benefiter of positive bias that people were positive to me to, because at that time things were changing and I remember one of the senior producers her son now married to a man and I met him when he was about six and he was such a little gay and I know he was positively bringing me in because she knew that was coming up behind her and she was hoping somebody would do that for her son so I was actually the benefit of all the work that David Norris and Tony Walton and all the activists had done was coming to fruition we were let's change the law Irish people were done with the notion that it was legal you know the guy had been murdered in in the park in Fairview and people were just like hang on a second they're murdering people just because they get like so the Irish people had started to change anyway and I was lucky enough to be my timing was very good as well I was lucky to be born when I was born when you said something there a while ago when we started the conversation and it kind of it shocked me because even though I know it when you hear it again you said it was illegal to be gay and this is kind of like saying it is illegal to be Chinese or illegal to be black or illegal to be from Galway. They're crazy statements. That should be illegal. That should be illegal, yeah. 
<laughs> That's why I'm in Spain. I'm on the run. <laughs> so it's crazy, though, these statements when we look back on it, isn't it, that you say it's illegal to be who you are? I remember it so well. I remember coming out and going to a thing called the Gay Youth Group, which was not far from where I live now, in Carmichael House, just yeah. off Smithfield. And it had on the board, it was a local community resource centre. It still is. But it had one of these boards where you could change the numbers, like a miniature you know, cinema board. And so it said, you know, uh, deaf people on a Sunday, gays on a Saturday, like we were listed in, 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 in order of wow. almost. Dis- and so it was very interesting that we were in a catchment with the notion that in some way couched in it, oh, poor gays, you know, but there wasn't a support group there. And this gay youth group was for people under 19 who were coming out. And I met my two best friends at it on a Sunday and they remain my best friends and still are. And but we would sneak into the back of pubs because we'd be terrified the cops would see us. And we didn't know. And if they were in the bad mood and they didn't like the look of you, they could arrest you. Like it was mad. Now they all turned a blind eye, but at the time it was a, the only thing about that I miss is it was a bit like prohibition. There was a frisson of excitement. About it. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of crazy because you know, if a guy is drunk and he takes off his shirt and he's walking down the street and the police say, oh, lewd behavior or this kind of stuff. So if two men or two women are openly kissing on the streets or just frolicking, playing around, even drunk, and that time the police said, okay, we're going to arrest you under this article or, yeah. you know, law, you kind of go, that's crazy. But they probably would get you under something else they would say like lewd behavior or indeed exposure or something imagine i was 22 when the law changed like i was wow. only working out i've finished college and finished school i was living in london yeah like my aunt my two weirdly and interestingly and fabulously my mom's two younger sisters who are 66 now both are married both have two sons are identical twins and both are now married to women wow and, and so we kind of knew they were gay when we were growing up so it was already a kind of a bit of a template of acceptance in my family. It wasn't. It was never spoken about, but we knew. And their students would tell us, and they lived in England. And oh, man, get people like, oh, she's, she's a, like people like that have a suspicion of these things, you know. And of course, you know, people say, "Oh, my gaydar is so spot on and everything." But you know, it's funny, isn't it? I remember doing a course one time with a guy. And, you know, like that, you can meet some people who are gay and maybe more with guys, maybe they're more camp. But with this guy, I never had a suspicion in the slightest. Yeah. And we were talking about uh, a pub in Galway City and yeah. I was saying, you know, oh, do you go there? And he said, yeah. And I said, um, I don't go to that pub much. Is it a good pub? Like you're single. Is it good for meeting girls there? And he said, I wouldn't know. And then the penny dropped. And I was like, oh. I said, I said, I have to be completely honest. I never realized. And I said, but I actually think that's good because <laughs> then you don't have these assumptions or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, we're, we're so progressive now in Ireland. It's so passe. I mean, I remember one of my friends in the mid noughties going, can we stop talking about you being gay? People are over yeah. So it's really great. And I can, since the marriage equality referendum, there's been a complete sea change in this country in tolerance. And that it's just like, nobody really cares. I was actually, I remember saying in an interview in about 2003, make hay brethren while the sun shines. Soon they'll realize we're just like them, normal. And, you know, I always kind of believe that in the same way, it's, it's nice to have more of a normality, I think. And maybe we're not fully there yet where, you know, people never went around saying, you, you know, he's straight. Nobody ever said that. Yeah. So yeah. You, you see, 
see that when yeah, they were yeah. putting gay people in the minority all the time. And even when it came to race, they would never say, you know, he's black or, you know, he's Chinese or, you know, he's whatever. So it was always there was certain ways of speaking about things. And I wanted to get to one thing you mentioned there about, yeah. you know, benefiting you when you went into TV land, because in a lot of TV roles, I can imagine mm -hmm. we see some presenters and they are more camp than others. So do you feel that when people go for certain types of shows, how they portray themselves is a benefit or a disadvantage? So I, there's two sides to it. One is I was, as I say, I was positively biased for by senior execs who were a bit afraid of me actually because I was huge and they didn't know how to handle me and so it's kind of like women looking for gender equality they're like oh fuck what do we say to this one now she's all over it middle-aged white men were like oh my god this camp fella what we do with him so in a way I'd go I want to do this and they go okay you can do that like I I'm organize this I want to go into that okay yeah 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 so they, I kind of got my way and things like that. and I, I didn't ask for stupid stuff it was kind of right. on the money with stuff but then in terms of presenting, I realized about 10 years into my career how judged I was for being camp or being a little buffet. Because I, I didn't think I was camp when I started. I started, I wrote Wanderlust, it was a late night internet TV dating show, travel dating show. And the premise, like it was way before Catfish, and the premise was we'd go into a chat room with a single guy and a single girl. And sometimes we did gay guys and gay girls as well. Yes, I remember. And we'd yeah. chat, we had a chat room set up and we would set up dates and they would chat and they'd pick someone. And then depending where that chat person was saying they were, we would then get on an airplane and fly and meet them. So we'd go all over the world and see if they were, like the yeah, premise was see, to get, there was two sides of the premise. They would show us, it was like weekend break, you need to know someone on the ground there to know where the good clubs yes. are, the good museums are. You need a young person to tell you, because, you know, I always think club night, good ones, they die and they open and they die and they open. And only someone there will know where to go. You'd often be standing in a queue somewhere and go, are we in the right place? Because you don't know the city at all, you know, whereas you'd be in Galway going, no, you're in the wrong place. You need to be up, you know, that was premise. And then we added the dating thing into it. And so when I started presenting it, because it was dating, there was a risque element to it, right? So there was... The wake-up call, I mean, we'd never do it now, but we would knock on the hotel bedroom door to see if they chagged, if they spent the night together. I mean, I think how, what they led us away of murder. And I would be kind of being funny me at a party when I was presenting. When I'm being, I had just come out a little while, like a few years, years beforehand. I was really enjoying being gay. I was really liking sort of bitchy satire that was, that kind of went hand in hand with being gay, which has kind of evolved, thankfully, now. And it's very 80s and it's very, belongs to, the boy Georges of the world who are like, all right, girl, you know, mean, bitchy 80s queens. But we were kind of replicating a bit. So it was kind of satire with it. And I, it was young gay, when I was young and gay, it was innuendo. I used to say I have splinters under my names from scraping the bottle of the bottom of the barrel of innuendo right i was literally innuendo innuendo because also if you remember you know you're you're at your sexual peak as well like you're in your early 20s sex is pretty much at the forefront of your sex and partying and travel so that's why i wrote because i wanted to not so much I, I had a partner then but then i wanted to travel i wanted to party and sex was very important to people in their 20s and you can see it now with, with t young tv shows it's like love island it's all about sex right yeah yeah <laughs> like when you think of all these shows now like naked attraction and you know like i'm in spain here and some spanish friends i show them some british shows and we have one friend and she's like crazy and she goes let's watch the show with the tits and ass and pussy and everything and i'm like oh naked attraction she said yeah that one she said we don't have anything. So we have like naked and afraid and naked dating. But she said, this one where they're just choosing them on their genitalia. She said, that's crazy. It's mad. But that's what's important to you when you're younger. And 
that's normal, it's fine. So, so I suppose the dating sexual element of it was innuendo, double entendre. And so that's kind of what my style was. And um, I remember kind of growing tired of that style. So we've got presenters in Ireland now, brilliant young guy, young gay guys like James Kavanagh, James Patrice, and great young presenters who are pre camp and do double entendre really, really well because that's the stage they're at. I've grown up now and that's no longer important to me. And luckily I've been allowed to grow up on television and so people don't see me like that anymore, which is interesting because you remember and I remember it. Yes, yes. A generation of us who remember that version of me on the screen. Where you are now with Keys to Your Life, when you're interviewing people and talking to them about their lives, I mean, if you were doing those double entendres, they probably would be a little uncomfortable because they'd be like, what, what, oh. why are we doing this? You're, you're talking about my mother and her battle with cancer and when you're we're doing double entendres. <laughs> and you know what? My, Sonia Lennon is my business partner in the fashion thing. And she's always laughing because of the background and because of people like our generation, or, you know, who remember that of me. Yeah, I had a lot, like, where people just didn't take me serious. And I had many, many, I'd be in a situation in, in a meeting or in a dinner situation with people who would look at me and go, that's that camp fella, he's needed, right? And then we'd start talking. And I have had, God, more than I can remember, a hundred times people have said to me, wow, you have a brain. <laughs> I've had that loads of times. Yes, I cause a fucking brain. But it's like, wow. Take me seriously. And so I'm going to be like, oh my God, stop getting so serious because you're so, I got really caught up with being taken seriously about five years ago. I've chilled out. I've chilled out now. Well, it is though, isn't it? Maybe sometimes you don't realize how people perceive you and then in real life. But, you know, the public, I think, in every kind of way can be a bit silly because people can say things like that to you or oh, you have a brain. And by them saying that, you're kind of like, I do, do you? Because those kind of questions and those presumptions are like something a child would say. Yeah, and also people people are very disarmed when they meet you and they recognize you, right? Yeah. But they they just to communicate, they say stupid shit all the time, right? They mean to you, it just comes out. Because they're kind of, oh, you're a guy, do I know that person? And they're confused and then they just say stupid shit. Like, always they get like, you're much taller or you're much shorter, you're much skinnier. Oh, you're much bigger. <laughs> Our characters, you know, you see sometimes whether it's somebody who's a musician or a, a presenter yeah. and maybe they have a catchphrase or a line, you know, and uh, like there's, I was reading a story last week about there's that heavy metal band System of a Down and they had a song and the first line was wake up. Da, 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 and the, the lead singer said he'd be walking down the street, like totally relaxed and fans will come up behind him and go, wake up. And he's like, Jesus Christ, man, what the fuck are you doing? And he said, they're just taking it too far. But for them, it's like, oh, oh my God, he loved this. He's going to love it. Now, do you remember my catchphrase on Wanderlust? Uh, I don't know if I do. You will remember because people shout at me still. And I'm proud of it now, but I was, it was, I have a fiver in my hand and a fiver in my pocket. I'm going to the airport, I'm going like a rocket. Huh? I'm <laughs> leaving the chat room to make an, you know, an edit point. That was like a Magaluf expression, wasn't it? You know? They just said the very first time we recorded, and I said, fiver in my hand, fiver in my pocket, going to the airport, I'm going like a rocket. And they were like, that's great. And somebody, yesterday, somebody said, and I said, God, this people still remember that. Now, when four years of doing Wanderlust, by year two and a half, I was fucking exhausted of people saying that to me because I was a bit embarrassed. But funny enough, looking back, I'm so proud of Wanderlust now. But at the time, it was late night, risque. Cobb probably would prefer if your aunts weren't watching it, you know, because I would say really shocking stuff or ask really shocking questions or we talk, you know, about penis size or 
what he likes big tits or like stuff that you just simply wouldn't say nowadays right and and, and it was inappropriate and it, like so maybe i was right to be a little bit embarrassed by it but now looking back i'm really proud of the format was really clever and we sold it all over the world and you know we won awards for for its interactivity because the internet was just starting out and so now i'm proud of it and, and that's who i was then but he to it was when i was presenting and i was being that company anyway that was who i was then yeah that was you that was you it was part of me i mean i did have quiet me and go to bed me and that, but that was me on up on on form being entertaining, which was part of, it was part of surviving culture as a camp gay man. You were the funny one. And you hear that before all the time with comedians. And in fact, because of that, just a complete segue, I got an agent in London and straight after Wonderlust, I did two years of Blind Date with Silla Black. I did the ITV2 show. I did the first two seasons of At and Dexter and I take away. And then my agent at the time was got money and was funding me to go to Edinburgh and do a comedy week in Edinburgh and try and win the Perrier. And once you win the Perrier, then you're, you know, you're, you're in the boys, right? And I remember sort of going, oh, okay, and getting pushed into this comedy thing. And I one day I just said to her, look, I'm just kind of camp and kind of funny. I'm not, it's not in me to, I don't need a group of people to laugh. I don't, I don't and often I see that many presenters keep falling, young presenters see them trying to be funny and they just fall flat because they're not naturally they're not comedians they haven't honed their craft so i'm always saying to young presenters you you just have to be nice everybody knows somebody who can be funny at a party and they say they're a very funny person but that doesn't mean they're comedians because you know you can have moments when you're at a party and you get on a roll and you're kind of in that moment and you're living life and but then if someone said okay you know that's very funny you should go on stage and be like i wouldn't know what to say you know so there's always different types of people and different types of comedy. And the business of comedy is a very serious business. I'm friends with quite a good few comedians and they work so motherfucking hard with their gigs. They develop it and they try it and develop it and try it. And they're driven by it. With That drive was never in me. The desire to people laugh isn't, was never in me. So Yeah, and I think it's something that if you... If you get into it by accident and it works well and you like it, but yeah, that thing where someone's pushing you and you're not sure, and maybe it's not, maybe it's not the right time either. I had an, I had a gut instinct that just relying on my face and my voice to make a living was not going to be scalable. Right. <laughs> I, needed a, I needed a product, either going to be a book or fashion or or cushions or can, I, I needed a product and every young person I interview or comes to me for advice and, and that happens quite a bit in telly and they're trying to get in or whatever I'm like what's the long game product yeah you always have that in your head you won't know what it is now but what can you sell that what's going to give you passive income when you're unemployed when you're not in television so I, I knew that comedy was not going to be that product for me because I knew that you'd have to go into the top four percent to make that massive living that sustains you forever otherwise you'll be in the fucking comedy cellar like a lot of people who, who are just really jobbing comedians and they work nights and weekends and in, in your 50s nights and weekends are not appealing right i think the problem is as well for all the younger people coming up much like the bbc itv and rt and those uh, and virgin now and everything the same people tend to get a lot of the gigs for you know it's like this click but yeah, but I mean, you've worked your way into that and you know how to stay. Because think about it. If you weren't getting the gigs, you wouldn't be working. So, of course, you have to survive. You're the big shark now. You know, there's a big misnomer that you get a phone call, right? Yeah. You get plucked from the sky. A big broadcasting finger comes down and says, you, we want you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It took me seven years to get a job as a researcher. It took me 10 showreels to ever get in front of camera and then all of a sudden I wrote Wanderlust there was a gap in the schedule and I picked up an internal phone because I was a researcher so it was a perfect storm 
it was 2609 was my number, so it didn't have the 203 in front of it. So the commissioning editor at the time, Claire Diagon, saw internal number and answered. And I said, hello, this is Brenda Kearney Open House. And she said, okay, well, well, I said, I have a format and you need it. And she was like, you're funny, come over now. And I pitched it to her and she commissioned it. Okay. That never happens. But I thought that's how it happens. Just ring them and they'll be like it, right? Never happened yeah. again in my whole career. Yeah, in a way, though, that kind of, uh, you know, being valiant and being brave and just being cheeky, it got you in the yeah. door. And when you did that as well with Wanderlust, where they, because I can imagine sometimes, for example, you have a great idea and you bring it to them and they're like, yeah, you know who'd be great presenting that? And you'd be like, me, me, me. Oh, she said, no, she said, why should I let you? Who's going to present yeah. it? She said, and I said, me, my idea. And she said, why would I let you present it? And I said, because you need new talent here. It is very old here. And she was like, well, we do need new talent. Are you any good? And I was like, I'm brilliant. And I was like, I don't think I'm really good. And she said, okay, go and make a pilot. And I'll never forget it, right? It was the best weekend of my life. Me and Teresa Smith, who's still one of my best friends, she's now a commissioning editor in RTU, but she was a researcher as well. And we wrote the idea together. And the idea was fundamentally mine, but she came up with the name, actually, one of us. And we wrote them. So we owned copyright together. And we, we ended up, she ended up directing it. She had been a presenter, actually. She wasn't very good. Yeah. She ended up directing it. And so next of all I ring her and I said they're fucking giving us the money for a pilot she's like shut up so we went to Toronto production she said Can, will you make this with us and they were like okay great so we brought them imagine the first commission was one million pounds we brought them I just walked in the door and said I've just got a commission but first of all they gave us 50 grand to go and make this pilot well, 50 grand is actually a small budget for a TV show but at the time we were like 50 grand someone's trusting us with 50 grand right so i assumed like i always do which is terrible irish you know high confidence low self-esteem i assumed we weren't going to get the commission so just enjoy this weekend in stockholm for fuck's sake yeah yeah yeah, yeah. for the weekend right yeah <laughs> just too excited we took the dates to parties and we made the pilot and the very first time i ever appeared on orchie 2 as a presenter and walking down this big glass Staircase, very nicely directed. And I'm going, welcome to a brand new series called Wanderlust on RT2, right? And if you look closely, you can see that I'm a little bit drunk. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> not just hungover, but drunk. Well, I hadn't slept. Yeah, yeah. I was fine and I looked great. I sound great, but me and Teresa knew. Oh my God. And that was kind of to set the tone for the next two years of my life. We just had a great time doing that, to be fairness. Yeah, and, and that's good. I mean, because I suppose, you know, you, like that, it's the people that take chances that get results. And sometimes you have to be cheeky and you have to push yourself forward because I imagine there's lots of people who pitch great ideas, but maybe they're not presenters. You know, they've great ideas. And then they're thinking, I'd like to present it because it's my show. And they're like, you don't really have us. You don't want, have what we need. So, I mean, for you to pitch it, for them to like the idea and then like you as the presenter, that worked out really well. Well, and interestingly, my confidence in presenting had come from about a year or two beforehand, off the rails or head to toe as it was then. And imagine I went for this and 17 years later, I took, I took over off the rails. So it was head to toe. And my friend, I was working in the Double Fringe Festival and I was really into my clothes. I always dressed really snazzy and I wear suits and funky shoes and blah. and this girl uh, still a friend of mine said they're looking for a presenter on, on off the euro you should go for that and i said like, really so i went and i paid 500 pounds for a crew and got got two of another friend of mine and we both did showreel in the day we got it edited and sent it in and i had this eight audition process and i kept getting through to the next round and it kept getting it got so painful i really wanted it then this is yeah this is like two years three years before I got into television. I kept going and going. And I remember every day waiting on the letter, waiting on the letter. And then eventually I got a phone call and Anne Roper, who's now retired, 
was head of docs, but she was head of lifestyle at the time, called me in and sat me down. And she said, and this was kind of spurred me on. So people like this are really important. I probably, if she hadn't called me into that room, I wonder would I still be a presenter? Because I was so just, she said, you didn't get it. And, and this guy called John Perry, he was like a fucking supermodel, got it. And I went, okay, they went with the looks. I get it. It's a fashion program. And she said, but you really have it. You absolutely have what it takes to be a really good presenter. So do not stop. You will present. And I was like, do I, you blow smoke up my arse. And she said, I only brought you in here to tell you that. Don't give up. You're really good. You just didn't get this one. Yeah, I was in the right time. I, mean, I, I It's not a case of destiny. Maybe you hadn't evolved enough or it wasn't the perfect moment for you to do that. I, I started my career as a series of dodging bullets, right? So that's bullet I dodged because the next thing I did was a rope format that I owned and then a couple of other big disappointments I got so just one I can think of straight away I was brought to England I was lorded around BBC and I was given my own Saturday night BBC 2 show and it was called class of and it would be class of 92 or class of 80 and I remember they developed the format and it was a big studio audience and it was just this class they reunited them and talked it was on nostalgia and I remember on the shooting the pilot in a huge studio show and they loved me. It was all great. And the very last minute, they dropped me and put Zoe Ball in it. Oh, wow. Oh, that's television though, right? And you put Z- yeah. Stinger. It's like, Lily Stings. You're like, fuck it anyway. And it bombed. It absolutely died. It bombed. You felt kind of euphoric that it bombed. You were like, that could have been me. Like, Zoe Ball barely survived the dive, you know? took a couple back so uh, there's moments that seem like massive disappointment and you look back and you go well that was a real bullet there I dodged you know and that's it isn't it because not everything will be successful and sometimes people can take roles that can be bad for their career and, and also every here's there's two things my two key pieces of information that I always keep the fore of my head first of all Nobody cares, right? So that's really important. So any public humiliation you feel is gossip for the people that they go home, they feed their kids, they go to bed. They don't give a shit about your... So nobody cares. And nobody cares comes from coming out at 19, recognizing it was illegal, but the rest of the world was wrong and I was right to be me. So that's a great gift about having to come out. It's a pain in the ass, but it gives you this real confidence about nobody gives a shit, really. Only I care. And, and, and nobody cares. And um, everything ends. <laughs> Everything, including life, ends. And, and everyone is expendable in every type of job. Everything ends. And so the first time your gig is cancelled, you're like, it's like someone stabs you in the back. Feel personal. But then you kind of go, and then you, let, then you grow up and you, you move through executive meetings or with people and you watch people make decisions about other things that aren't involving you. And you see how many moving parts there are in decision making. And it's very rarely personal. Very, very rarely personal. No, it's, it's all, a, everything is a vehicle that moves us on to yeah. something else. And, you know, we're all parts of that machinery in the vehicle. But yeah. as you said, you can take it personally, but... I think what happens is when you're placing yourself within that dream and you're saying, okay, that's what I've always wanted to do. This is the perfect thing. And maybe for some people, it's that big break because they feel like if I don't get this, there's nothing else. But there is always something else because if you work hard enough to get to that first place, you can work harder to get to the next place. Also, if if you attach yourself to getting on Love Island or getting in Big Brother and that's going to be the be all and end all for you. Yeah. That is, that's a lazy jump into Instagram followers and celebrity. But these kids kill themselves in the gym to look that 
hot and good, right? In a way, you're like, maybe this is, but, but just attaching yourself to one idea of what success looks like is a, is, is a hiding to nowhere. They're coming at it from the wrong angle because, you know, as you said there, when with off the rails, you know, this guy, you felt, oh, he's hotter than me or whatever. So the thing about it is when you're just basing it on looks and how people look, or if you're, if you're thinking, I'm going to go on Love Island because I feel I look this way, I'm, I'm a gift to the people. Well, the problem is then, how are you going to become a presenter when you have to wear your clothes? You have to have charisma. You have to have that personality to talk to people. So that always has to be there first. And that personality that shines through, you need that. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mentioned Lolo twice. I absolutely hate Love Island. I think it's totally socially irresponsible as a TV it's not inclusive it's not even diverse it's just ridiculous i always say that to my wife when we're watching love island i always say you know in this modern day and age and we've had tolerance for gay couples for so long why don't they bring gay people on the show like i remember a couple of years ago in love island there was um two women that formed a relationship that was kind of accidental so i think they were like oh what are we going to do with this but they never bring on let's say a guy or, or a girl and say, I quite like that girl. I mean, it would be so much more entertaining if it was very random as if anything could happen, you know? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And that's why I don't, I kind of resent it that it is so powerful. And that, and then, you know, you hear of people my age whose teenagers watch it, so therefore they watch it and they get sucked along with it. And I'm like, it's such a bad example to set your teenagers that this is the idea of success, walking around in your bikini on a TV show. It's not. And that's why you have you know, all these young guys pumping weights all the time because they want to look like that. And the girls, you know, I always say, I talk to people who work in gyms and they say all girls work on is their ass nowadays because they all want to have yeah. the Kim Kardashian ass and they see Love Island and there's kind of this perfect model of what something should be. And then they're also thinking, oh yeah, I, I can be a, a model and a presenter and I can work my way up and be like somebody else. And Unfortunately, I don't think it's saturated. Yeah. There's too many people want that now. Well, we're, the interesting thing is, and I observed this 10 years ago, maybe 20 years, 15 years ago, is that we're all content creators now, right? So the, the dynamic has flipped in that <clears throat> traditionally I would, you turn the TV on and people like me would entertain you and you'd stroll through. Now, there is radio and audio has shown since COVID, there's a real, people want to be passively entertained. They don't always like that's why Netflix most used button is surprise me because they want they want to tell me show me show me what I want to watch sometimes because that's exciting to find it so we're we're fundamentally quite uh, lazy when it comes to that but there is definitely a wall of content that's being built and cynically as well TikTok being the worst version of it because TikTok is the, the main for the show off right and and I would have been on TikTok loads if I was 14 or 15 of course I would that's natural, right? But it's the demand for attention, attention, attention. And what's interesting about TikTok is, and what, why I worry about the future of these young people who are buying into it, you're actually making content for advertisers. They're make, doing the Dorito dance. Or the, I'm not Doritos, but I'm just an example. I'm making that. Of course. You do these dances with music. That's advertising. You're making free commercials. You're making free commercials. Everybody's doing making free commercials. You imagine when they see those, I imagine there's thousands of them and they see a really good one and they're like, that's actually good quality, 4K, best equipment, and the girl looks really good. We don't need to pay them anything. Well, they don't pay them anything. No, no, they don't. There's an amazing, did you see, did you watch The Social Dilemma? Let me see, did I? Tristan Harris, about Oh, no, I didn't actually watch it yet. I've been meaning to watch that for a long time. They have a podcast called uh, Your Undivided Attention, which is amazing, which is basically about, it's about 
the prediction economy. So basically, they, they not only look for our attention, the attention economy, but they can predict how we'll behave. And they sell that data now. And they sell it to advertisers. And they can pinpoint you or me with stuff that predict that we will buy. It's, it's amazing, right? Did you know that the algorithm in China for TikTok is completely different to what we have? In China, they actually show inspirational and educational videos to the people, young people and adults. They learn from it. There's not like, you know, people be doing pornographic dances or sexual routines or all that kind of stuff. There's not silly pranks. Everything is something of value for people's lives. I mean, it can entertain a little bit. But then what do they give the West? All the content to get you addicted. All the shite. Yeah. <laughs> all the shite. Yeah. That to me as well kind of spells out something there because... It's nearly like they're trying to manipulate how the Western social, the society grows up. We're, we're falling down a warren hole here. Yeah, of course. The reason Trump got into power, the reason Brexit happened is because a load of very clever analytical people bought advertising and people who were on the fence and they voted one way. The reason Brazil is divided 50-50 between left and right is because of Facebook ads and Twitter ads. So we have to regulate social media. But interestingly, since COVID, we have seen numbers in television on, on terrestrial television have gone way back up. Passive for, people have cancelled their subscription. We've seen that since COVID. They've gone back to listening is huge. Audio, podcast, as we know, audio. But it's massive. Radio is massive. I've just been covering for Ryan Tuberty on Radio 1. Their numbers are out the door. Like So passive entertainment is very important to people, I think. And that's good because it means I feel a disconnect happening with smartphones. I feel people. And my brother-in-law said it to me really interesting. He said, they're no longer fabulous or interesting. They're just a computer in your pocket. Yeah, and they're kind of becoming a little outdated, aren't they? So we're, we, we've done it all. They make banking easy. I can listen to my music. I can do the podcast. But do I want them mapping everything I do and sending me ads for earwax cleaner? No. When you have those moments, I only really got TikTok when I started kind of doing the podcast. But I never really used it that much. But then I found I was using it more. And then I was like, why am I on it for an hour? Or, you know, it was like it kind of trapped you. So a couple of weeks ago, I just deleted it. And I'm like, wow, I think I've gained an hour or two back in my day every day. <laughs> I, because of my job, I'm on all social media. And also, like my dad, I'm quite interested in technology. Like, I'm fascinated by it as well. So I, I like the, the social network, the main technology. I, I love that. I'm, I'm fascinated by the attention economy and that stuff we're just talking about here. But I have I have a TikTok account because I'm on TV in Ireland. Yeah, of course. Yeah. If you look at it, it's quite interesting. I have about 3,000 followers, but very little. I, I, just re, I just rehash stuff for Instagram for advertising TV, right? Guess how many people I follow. I don't know. None. Zero. None. None. <laughs> None. I love the algorithms. Like, what the fuck is this dude doing? <laughs> Come on, pick one. They're like, just pick one, you know? No. <laughs> let's, uh, let's change kind of, you know, tack a little bit here. So let's talk about the fashion side of your life. And when you look at shows like Off the Rails and Head to Toe and all of these, but when you and Sonia Lennon, when you kind of started doing fashion together, and you decided to set up a company. How important is that in your life nowadays? It's one of my passions in that we, so and it all ties into everything. I, I always think at the center of everything I did was fundamentally about equality. So Wanderlust helped people who didn't travel, who hadn't gone partying, you know, or hadn't had sex. Yeah. It was about giving them an opportunity to do that and myself in, in the journey, right? And so 
when we did off the rails, it wasn't about telling people what to wear. We only ever helped people who asked for our help, right? Who were lost a little bit. And we'd say things like, we're not psychologists, but a good hair day is better than a bad hair day. So let's start with that. So we'd start with the aesthetic. And that was always the impetus to push people to leave bad marriages, to set up their own businesses, to, you know, embrace the empty nest situation they're in and, and get a part-time job. That makes me laugh because I'm thinking about, you said there, you know, uh, do you, what was the name of the guy in England? Uh, what, what was his name? Doc Juan. Doc Juan, yeah. But it was so funny because, you know, he'd be saying you're wearing the stripes the wrong way, you know. They're not accentuating your body. But you wonder then, would that woman or man go home and say, I was wearing my stripes the wrong way. I'm leaving you. Yeah. <laughs> Fundamentally, what it was about was about creating a little, a little resurgence of confidence for people. So we saw that that's what we were actually doing. Was wasn't really about the clothes or the fashion. And the fashion side of things is like football for me. I'm fascinated by the theatre of it, the stupidity of it, the insanity of fashion, the the, no, the nonsense that it's art. It isn't. It's ass art, you know. And I'm a designer and I'm a qualified designer. It's not. It's a commercial art. It's like graphic design. You need to. No point. Yes. And uh, so there's a lot of bullshit around that I quite enjoy tearing it down and analyzing it. So that's fashion is one part of it. But the confidence and equality piece was about boosting a generation of women who probably had fewer choices than their younger sisters or than their daughters who come at, come through an Ireland that was very repressive of women. And so they they arrive at our door and we would go, right, let's let's get your confidence back up. So that was the the main aim of it and so we decided to make clothes that did that so confidence equality and color and empowerment are, are our pillars and everything we design we go will that give confidence does it empower is it comfortable does it have good color and so that that we have this once you have a set of values everything falls out of that in a really natural way so we started the business i think 14 years ago 13 years ago. um we're seven 12 years ago i think and um we were five years independent and that was really hard <laughs> we like that's literally singing the theme tune writing the theme selling the theme tune doing everything and then we licensed to duns seven years ago five six and a half years ago and so that's democratized it and made it more accessible in terms of cost which is even more important to us as well that people can buy it and afford it and so yeah it, it's really it's a very important part and we do myself and I do a podcast now and that podcast is in season nine now was to add value to the women who buy our clothes we've been called the thinking woman's take a break so we talk about boundaries relationships alcoholism nightmares but we always call it the thinking woman's guide to boundaries thinking woman's guide to nightmares thinking woman's guide to the afterlife you know and we, we gas away we have sonia brings in a few facts and blah blah blah. but it's always with the purpose of making her putting her in her ear and giving her a giggle for 25 minutes you know so love has a purpose for for that woman who we feel doesn't get paid equally as men is probably from slightly of an age where she remembers being repressed, has been over-sexualized by media. You know, it's turning into gender equality massively on the on the horizon for Ireland, specifically to follow the Icelandic model. And we believe we have a product that ties in with that. Ties in with that, yeah. And it's funny, actually, because when, when we look at fashion in general, I always kind of think that when you see, you know, fashion shows, Milan, Paris, all of these things, and, you know, these models are stick thin, you know, and they're, People say they're not real women, you know, they're, they're real women, but they're not how the average woman looks. No, they're not. I always think that those shows are more created for women to buy clothes. They, they probably don't buy those clothes. But when you ask a lot of men, what's your kind of definition of a woman with a good figure? They kind of say curvy, but they might look at those models and say they're too thin. Yeah. So it's this kind of illusion and a bit of a lie that we've been led to believe that's how women look. 
Where, when in reality, women see it one way and men see it a different way. That's exactly it. But they're not trying. They're not trying to sell to men. No, they're trying to sell to women. Exactly. But they're trying to sell to execs, and there is like it depends on the garment. But very often there was a theory, and I don't buy into it by the way, that basically clothes look better on thinner, taller people. Yes, of course. There's a theory. That's a theory. Not true. That means that the garment is more important than the person, and mm. that's an old way of thinking about fashion. The person is more important than the garment. The garment should fit the person, not the person fit the garment. And so fashion has been designed to make us believe that the garment is more important than the person. That's kind of like, it's okay to have a yellow Lamborghini, but a yellow Ford Cortina mightn't look as good. Yeah, but I know what you mean. Yeah, it's it's like it's the, the clothes are the main thing. Yeah. The person wearing them has to make the clothes look good. Yeah, it's secondary. But that's, Bullshit, and people have a confidence about that now. And you're seeing even young women, particularly, going, "Fuck that! These better clothes have to work for me. I don't work for the clothes." Yeah, of course, of course. And then you know what's quite interesting? You see those shows, but then when you see Victoria's Secret, then the women are, are curvier, and then it's like, "Oh, men will watch that, maybe." You understand? So it's kind of it's contradicting itself a little bit. Victoria's Secret models aren't curvier; they're just naked. <laughs> they're more glamour models than some of the other ones maybe they're average average height 5 foot 11 they're tall thin like very few there's no curvy models in Victoria's Secret either I really hate Victoria's Secret I can't believe success it's just the over sexualization of young women for the benefit and amusement of everybody else just drives me crazy I'm like standing outside huge Victoria's Secret shop going really <laughs> yeah yeah and actually recently myself my wife were in a club and it was like 11 or 12 o'clock at night and the club was busy and the video screens in the club were showing Victoria's Secret show and Lady Gaga was singing and I was like well, this is weird because we're in a club and they're showing a Victoria's Secret show. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's definitely weird. But then again, you know, neo-feminism and Beyonce feminism would say a woman is totally entitled to embrace her sexuality. And so of course. I would be approve of that as well. But the, I just think the over-sexualization for the purpose of sale of a product can be questioned. That's all. Exactly, yeah. So let's just talk quickly about going back to the EDI and the inclusion and so on and diversity. So, you know, you do a lot of talking about this and... You know, you had your own, I know you had your own uh, homophobic attack on the streets and you've kind of been on the really blunt edge of, of homophobia in that respect. But I'm sure you've seen it in so many other areas of your life, not just in that physical attack, but as in verbal attacks and how people say things and everything. So how do you think that Ireland has changed in that respect? Well, it has changed massively. We, we, we are the only country in the world. We banned plastic bags first, we banned smoking in public areas first, and we legalised gay marriage by, yeah. popular, by popular demand. Like We're amazing. We're a deadly little country. It has changed completely. The atmosphere has changed. But I tell you, what I really noticed around that time, I was attacked. I went public because it was pre-marriage equality, and I thought, I'm going to use this to get sympathy for people to see what happens to us because what was really interesting is all my sound nice heterosexual friends were like that shit still happens and like women being pinched or groped or or cat caught we just we gave people just li- learned to live you you, you, cro- you saw a group of lads across the road you just learned to live with it you took so straight people were like oh you live with that and we were like yeah you kind of learn to live with it and you just roll around it and you just kind of ignore it because because threatening unless you become less afraid of it because you get desensitized to it but we live with that every day and so many people were like 
oh god I didn't know that and yeah and then like I said and the way women relate to us is women live with constant harassment and constant put down yeah and and getting off a night bus at night nervous won't women won't walk home at night on their own that's just how they live and so lots of women and gay men were like well actually you know what fuck that we're not living like that anymore we're going to come out and tell you this is what it feels like so Ireland really acknowledged that very quickly and thought, oh, these are personal stories. This is my hairdresser, my nephew, my son, my neighbor, my brother. You know, these people are living with this repression, right? That's just vote. And even if the bullies in school still pick on the little boy who's a bit say, the teacher can say the law is on our side. These people are equal. Shut up. So I don't believe in marriage or the, the patriarchy is a thing. I think that should be disbanded as an idea, but that's another question but I want the right to change my mind and get married if I want to. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And it's like nowadays, I think there's a lot of pressure on children and teenagers, you know, if they make a decision to be transgender or gay or any kind of other sexuality. I always think that's fine. Let them make them decisions, but let them change back because, you know, we we can say, I'm going to be, I'm going to work as a fitness instructor and you do it for two years and then you go, I don't like it. So you have the choice to go back to do what you were doing before. And that should be the same with things in our life because, you know, you're at an influential age where you're basing your decisions on how you feel. You're basing your decisions on your peers and all of these things, but then things can change. And, we should have the right to be who we want and go back and change. Yeah, I mean, so particularly around the trans issue, I don't talk about that, funny enough, because I'm not trans. And I find, I, I, I always say, if you're going to talk about an issue of a repressed minority, you need a repressed minority member at the table to tell you how it's. I think that's really important. But I do, th- you know, the right to choice is the most important right for humanity. Of course, yeah. Let's just talk about your books, you know, because you're an author as well. And so you've written a few books, Love Your Look, Your Best You and so on. When you go to write a book, are you kind of always coming from at it from one angle or are you thinking... They're kind of bad examples because basically we were doing Off the Rails and Gok was doing how to look good naked and he was on his seventh book ghost written by a woman called angela buttolf who's a friend of mine and she said you should do a book so i came to ireland back with the idea and said gok is doing this incredible book so i accompany the tv series let's do a book and they said absolutely and i said and i have this woman angela buttolf who write the book and they were like no pal in ireland you'd be laughed out of the publishers you need to write the book. so myself and sonia wrote both those books there's a process we wrote them i was living in london in between shooting online they, they both did really well they were number one at christmas and that was great but they were a book to accompany the cv series so they're kind of about tips and tricks on how to get your confidence and use color and blah blah, blah. i'm now writing a, a book on my own called mammy issues which is the history of irish women's reproductive rights told through the eyes of my mother and that's a proper dive into research and then write sort of entertaining fun story that my mum's engagement with reproductive rights throughout her life so they're, they're very different feeling and actually because I, we did the masters last year and I had to write 20,000 word pieces it gave me the confidence now to sit down and write a book myself that was a labor of love that was academic writing it was a pain in the ass like it, it got really difficult and then now I'm in a situation where I'm writing something I love and I'm interested in it. It was training. Not that I wasn't interested in it, but academic writing is really hard. No, and you can find a new way and you learn how to do things again. I'm going to let you go, and but I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been lovely to chat to you. Maybe we'll get you on again some other time and we'll have a longer chat on lots of issues, you know? Can you tell us just, you know, last thing, obviously you have keys to your life, but have you other new projects coming up as well so we're, we're starting now keys to my life series four we start casting now we're actually in the process of casting. we start shooting next month actually so that's happening straight away and then 
I've been doing a lot of radio. I've been covering for Ryan Tuberty on Radio 1. I've done it four times now. And so that's kind of a nice little craft to, to get. Live radio, is, and it's the gay burn hour, so it's a big hour. And uh, it, I feel very fortunate to do that. And then I, I'm writing this book, and I hope when the book is finished, I'm going to do a book tour. But I want to do a book tour of universities in America to show how stupid it was to roll back Roe and Wade. And that the, the premise of my book is don't fuck with women. <laughs> that would be a great title. <laughs> really bad for everybody <laughs> you could release mammy issues and then do a second volume called don't fuck with women part two and they'll be like where was part one? Oh, that was mammy issues <laughs> yeah, yeah. so listen it's been great to talk to you you know it's nice to hear your views and all of this well done on your career and i applaud you for your bravery in the beginning days when, of your career and taking those steps that got you to where you are so well done. You know, you've been a great entertainer so far and we look forward to many great shows from you in the future. Thanks so much. I love you talking to you. Thanks a million. Brendan Courtney, everybody. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Brendan Courtney. It was a pleasure to talk to you and it was nice to hear about your very career and, you know, we've seen those shows all through the years being very successful shows and you've been a very successful presenter and so well done and congratulations on all the work you've done so far and we look forward to new shows and we have to commend you in your new show, Keith to Your Life, such a fabulous show and we look forward to more from you, Brenda. Thank you very much. Okay, everybody, I'm glad you are enjoying the content we're giving you so far. And if you'd like to hear more, stay tuned. We have some fabulous guests in this season three. And we hope you come back and we hope you're enjoying everything you're hearing so far. So if you are, please subscribe, tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you very much. So my name is Simon K. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. Until the next time, take care of yourself, your friends and your family and all the people you love. Bye bye. Bye.